Welcome to the Porch Roof Classic, a retro baseball podcast novel in 15 episodes by Jeff Pullman. Episode 2. Saturday's humidity was worse than Friday's. We barely felt it. Summer had shoved its way in, and we weren't going to take one millisecond of it for granted. My brother woke me most every day with his atomic baseball yakking, but this morning felt different. I poured us matching bowls of Captain Crunch, and by 7.30 we were in the backyard for a half hour of Robbie Wiffle practice. It went the way it usually did. Ten balls pounded into the ground, five fouls into the Bickerstein hayfield, two more hooked into mean old Milton Frank's yard, from which they would never return. Three harmless moon pops over Phil's tree and 17 dud missiles straight into its thirsty limbs. Robbie was crabby again, despite some good swings, and at 8.15 with our t-shirts and shorts already glued to our skin, we loaded the balls and two plastic bats into an old pillowcase, crossed the street, and hiked the four blocks to the Wiffle Grounds. The grounds was actually a bowl-shaped vacant lot, scooped out of the side of a hill five years ago and left to decay. Pete Scotia, a lazy neighborhood contractor, talked its buyer into a different site two streets away at the last minute when he didn't like the looks of what he unearthed and suspected root fungus. Anyway, the lot was a near-perfect horseshoe, and all we could think of was the polo grounds, legendary home of the New York Giants and early playpen for the New York Mets before they became amazing. Stray roots and vines hung from the ground's nine-foot-high cliff edges, and balls needed to land atop these cliffs to be called home runs. Two of the closer cliffs converged to form a natural home plate area, and it took us just a couple of weekends to carve dugouts out of the dirt walls with shovels and spades. Izzy was already there when we arrived, twirling black bonzo, his thick, cloth-handled weapon of plastic destruction, he went halfway to Worcester to find at a secret department store he refused to tell us the name of. When we reminded him that wiffle bats tend not to last and suggest he stock up on a half-dozen black bonzos just to be safe, he just smiled and winked. Knowing Izzy, he had already done that. Gene showed up wearing jeans and his black-and-gold Boston Bruins jersey like he usually did. We knew he had actual legs though we had never seen them, and figured they were either excessively hairy, bony, disfigured, or whiter than two long sticks of Mrs. Potash's algebra chalk. Scotty gonna show up? he asked, bunching up one of his black jersey sleeves over an imaginary box of cigarettes. Probably on his fifth pancake, said Izzy. Scotty Vezzo was a chubby Italian kid who sometimes biked over from Goslin Avenue, right on the border between North and South Marsh. He couldn't catch ran like an opera tenor intended to fart while he did it, but had a natural Willie Horton windmill swing that powered balls atop the cliff with regularity. We weren't sure if his dad was in the local mob or not because we were afraid to ask, but he and his sisters always seemed to get ten tons of Christmas presents. They went out to Cavelli's Clams for half their meals, and Mr. Vezzo worked for a suspicious-sounding place called Consolidated Fertilizer. We killed a few minutes by taking turns hitting and shagging, then catching up on the Friday night scores that were dispatched late from the West Coast. Boog has 17 homers now, only two back of Frank Howard, yipped Robbie as he swung and missed an Izzy curve. I think my thumb's in the wrong place, said Izzy. 
That curve should be breaking like waves on the cape. He threw another, and Robbie missed again, nearly twisting himself into the soft dirt. Carew is over 370 now. Can you believe that? It's got to be almost 830, I said. Should we go two on two? Hold your tits, said Jean. I believe in Scotty. I believe in his farts, said Izzy. I replaced Robbie at our rusty hubcap of a home plate and swatted a few practice shots into the horseshoe distance. We were already schwitzing. Robbie scampered after one of my flies and did a face plant. Furious bike pedaling was heard on the nearby sidewalk. Scotty appeared, skidded his fat tires into the ground a few yards from home plate. He slapped hands with everyone, put on his frosty blue space-age wraparound shades, and caught the breath he was usually out of. You okay? I asked. Not really. Cousin Johnny came up like number seven. Our faces sagged. Vietnam had been the big porcupine in the room for years, bursts of horror occasionally caught on the nightly news, but never really present in our budding lives until four Kent State students were murdered in early May, an event that Izzy hadn't stopped having nightmares about. Also, the selective service system reinstated their draft lottery back in December, and anyone we knew between 18 and 26 could be affected. That sucks, said Jean. Eh, we'll get him out of it. How? asked a nervous Izzy. You'll see. Let's choose up. Remembering we still had at least four years of life left, Black Bonzo got tossed in the air. Izzy grabbed the middle of the bat as it fell, then me atop his hand, then Izzy, then me, then Izzy with an inch to spare, and he got the pick sides. I'll take Scotty. Okay, so me, Gene, and Robbie again. Robbie hooted with delight. He knew he'd spend most of the game racing around the compact Wiffle Grounds outfield like a water bug. But if he got lucky, he might catch a ball, and he'd certainly get some at-bats in. I let Robbie lead off to give him a boost. He grabbed our skinny yellow bat and tried out his faux Willie Mays swing, grinding his back foot into the dirt and holding his hands low for maximum uppercut speed. He struck out on three Izzy floaters, trying to clear the cliff or reach Holyoke. I dug in, opted for the right-handed Reggie Smith swing, bat wagging loosely over my head to almost Yaz height, ready to meet the pitch square and line it somewhere. Izzy started me with a big curve, and I fouled it back off Robbie's neck, which didn't help his mood. The next pitch got smacked off the left-field cliff. Scotty lunged in vain for it with his oversized glove, and I had a single. Gene refused to ape the style of any big league hitter. The balls flew off his bat in all directions, 95% of them liners. He may have hit a pop fly once in the last three years, but no one could recall it. Scotty moved back a few steps to ward off impairment. Gene remained perfectly still at the plate, hands loosely holding the bat at belly button level. Izzy threw, and Gene unleashed a ferocious horizontal swing like a sharecropper's scythe. The ball shot straight out the center, and Scotty shut his eyes, leapt five inches into the air, and snagged the thing in his mitt. "'No good, son of a whore!' yelled Gene. "'Had it all the way!' yelled Scotty back. "'Like hell!' "'Like your mom's nightgown!' "'Like your dad's jockey shorts!' "'Like your dad's nightgown!' That shut Gene up. Robbie whiffed again on three pitches, and we didn't score. The game lasted around two hours. Scotty cleared the cliff and left six times, and then left us in the dust by a score of 25-16. to 16. Izzy walked home with us after the game. He still seemed real bothered about something, and I had a hunch what it was. If you're still shook up about Scotty's cousin, we don't have to worry about Vietnam for a few years. 
I know, but I really don't want to have to run away to Canada or anything. What makes you think you'll have to? Because there's a lottery, Joey, and I could be like the third pick. You could also be 349th, and we'll probably win the war by then anyway. Izzy nervously scratched his arm, then pounded an angry fist into his glove. I just, I just don't want to get killed or, you know, kill anybody else. His voice cracked. I put an arm around his shoulder and squeezed. Robbie kicked a small rock along on the sidewalk, making fart sounds with his mouth. Mr. Bajoric had a desk set up in his boiler room, in the bowels of the junior high. The door that plummeted down to his lair was already locked, but I was told the school's back entrance would be open when I arrived at eight o'clock and no seconds later. I parked my bike inside the building entrance, moved down the shadowy waxed hall to the boiler room door. It was propped open with a trash can. Dimly let steps dropped into spooky blackness. I could faintly hear Bajoric singing to himself in a foreign language. Wanting to get this over with, I made a lot of noise on the steps. Who doing that? Bajorek's raspy voice erupted. The boiler room smelled like cigarettes and cabbage, and Bajorek, six feet tall, bald, bearded, and skeletal in his dark green denim jumpsuit, had a camel in his bony fingers that he quickly crushed out in a butt-filled ashtray on his little desk. Joey Tosh, I said, here for, um, handy-hand work? Yes, Joey, my handy-hand. So good you come. Put this on now. He threw a grimy apron over my head that was too big for me and dragged on the floor. First we do trash pick, then window scrape, then toilet attack. Toilet attack sounded less than fun, with window scrape a close second. Before I had a chance to dwell on those possible horrors, Bajorek handed me a giant plastic trash bag and nudged me back up the stairs. Start in corner of athlete field, put trash in bag, around the whole school. It was another muggy morning, and by the time I was about one-third around the field, my pits were dripping away. Some of us had taken our lunches and snacks outside on the final day, and I was forced to reap the trashy benefits in the form of empty plastic cups, soiled napkins, and ant-covered paper plates. I was tired, hot, and aggravated by the time the window-scraping portion of the morning began. This mostly involved removing dead bugs and bird gunk from the outside of classroom windows and boogers, dead flies, gum, and what may have been spit from the inside. It was even more delightful with the stench of old country food over my shoulder. My papa did this at his factory, whole life. That's pretty neat. Um, do you know when Danny Blight is supposed to get here? I don't know, but Danny coming. Toilet attack thankfully did not require my bare handy hands. Bajorek gave me a pair of two tight rubber gloves to wear with a hole or two in most fingers, a toilet brush that somehow survived the 1950s, and my choice of boys' or girls' room to attack. I picked the girls and immediately regretted it. Bajorek had also given me a washcloth soaked in some disgusting chemical that I had to use on the countless lipstick messages left on the mirrors after I was finished scrubbing the toilets. Two and a half hours may have gone by, but they felt like five. Then I suddenly heard the lofty, grating tones of Danny Blight's voice. I poked my head out the door. Danny was twenty feet away with an open box of donuts, and Pajoric was reaching in for one with his oversized paw. Danny saw me exit the girls' room and flashed a sick grin. Enjoy yourself in there? How come you're so late? I asked. He hesitated a moment. Men gotta do things sometimes. He took a healthy bite out of a glazed with sprinkles. What'd you do, sign a handy-hand contract? 
really didn't have to do that, Tosh. This donut break better not be part of your hour, Danny. I really could have used your help. That's okay, he said and licked glaze off his fingers. I'll just take care of everything you missed. I moved a livid step closer, the smirk on Danny's face, his Bermuda shorts and olive green short sleeve silk shirt that made him look more suited for a tennis lesson were fueling new rage, and Bajoric sensed it. No fight, boys, he barked. Oh, we're just messing around, right, Tosh? Maybe you are. You fight, you pay, with toilet scrape. I didn't even want to imagine what toilet scrape was. Danny handed Bajoric the donut box and cracked his knuckles. Ready to wash your car windshield, Mr. Bajoric? I grumbled something unprintable and walked back to the girls' room to finish up. Next day, I took my Danny frustration out on the lawns of Squaw Farm like like old annoying friends, they greeted me with humid hellos and grassy tickles on my shins. With Mel Bornstein off to work early and Cheryl Bornstein having a 9 a.m. beauty parlor date, I rolled our gas-powered Toro Guardian around to launch position in their canyon of a front yard, yanked its chuggy motor to life three times, and picked out a handful of Rolling Stones tunes to sing to myself as loud as possible. Get off my cloud, kicked in headfirst, and it was up and back and up and back around the shrubs and croquet set. The Zellmans were next, their minefield of backyard toys purged to the patio and up and back, up and back, up and back, and around the giant circular pool with its slippery stairs branded with little dirty footprints. It was 103 by afternoon, and Mrs. Raskovich was there with an ice-cold Arnold Palmer to cool my boiling head. She complained about her lazy husband while wearing frosted lipstick, yellow stretch pants, and a short-sleeved tropical blouse tied loosely in front over sunburned cleavage. If only I was old enough to read a situation. Four lawn jobs in one day was pushing it, but I was young and crazy and wanted that new stereo system I saw at Zare a few weeks ago. So it was the seagulls or bust. They were a hike down Squaw Farm and up Chestnut Road and had the most impossible back lawn you could ever cut. But Bert Siegel was a jolly chain-smoking al- alcoholic who owned Siegel's shoes in West Springfield and paid better than anyone in the neighborhood. Where are you going to college, chief? It was the same question he asked me every time. I always had the same answer. Um, not even in high school yet. Yeah, but now you're about to be. He leaned in close to my face. The fluids in his body must have been at least 60% whiskey. How's your old man? Fine. Keeping you busy? Uh, Nope, I keep myself busy. That's good, that's good. He moved a step forward and poked my shoulder. Work like a bastard, Joey. Always work like a bastard. Funny, but Bert was always in golf clothes, and I don't think he worked at his shoe store more than three hours in an average week. I'll do that. Good. And say hi to your old man. Yep. I started for the backyard, getting it over with. And tell him he owes me 18 holes at Linwood this summer. Sure thing. The seagull's backyard barely had a lawn, more like a rock-strewn moonscape with occasional tufts of grass poking through. They also had four boys aged five to ten who liked to lie in the weeds and torture me whenever I showed up. Pebbles and calcified snots were the weapons of choice, and if I left the mower for a moment to chase one or two of them around, another would try to piss or pour sand into my gas tank. That day it was almost too hot for torturing hijinks, but that didn't deter the imps. A wad of chewing gum hit the back of my head in no time, and I jerked the mower in their direction to scatter them. You can't get us, barf boy, yelped one. Yes, my infamous final day of junior high had somehow reached the younger masses. 
The smallest of the cabal dropped his shorts and wangled his little wee-wah at me on one of my rotations, and it was a good thing Siegel's wife spotted this from the kitchen window, because she was outside dragging two of them into the house by the collars in no time, no doubt telling them to play in their rooms like bastards. Still, everything the Siegel imps hurled at me was gentle rain on my back. Larry Menken was roped into doing his dad's lawn, and mean Milton Frank took care of his, but being the go-to landscaper for nearly every squaw farmyard was actually a quietly fun job. I felt like the caretaker of the neighborhood. Dad thought he did this when he drove up the street, but uh uh-uh. I was the one in the trenches. I knew who was on vacation, smelled what people were cooking for breakfast, spotted a clothesline, and knew which Goldbergs went swimming the day before. Squaw Farm was like my very own sociology project. Across from the seagulls, far more cuttable front lawn, a for-sale sign was stuck in the Jaffe's front yard. Mrs. Jaffe died of cancer recently, and Mr. Jaffe left the state, and now their sad, peeling house was adorned with an overgrown yard that could earn me a good $20 if the realtor was nice enough on the phone. I memorized his number and made a mental note to pass it on to my dad. Phil was not only a walking neighborhood gossip column, but was always on the lookout for a new coat customer. You've been listening to The Porch Roof Classic by Jeff Pullman. This retro baseball podcast novel was made possible by Spotify for Podcasters and Buzzsprout. Be sure to basket catch another episode next week. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to contribute, go to buymeacoffee.com slash jpolman54v. Thanks.